0: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12 week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition. The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Laura Prendergast. In this week's episode, how are China and Russia beating the West in the great game of vaccine diplomacy? Plus, has the US media lost its way? And finally, what's behind our newfound love of the Anglo-Saxons? First up, while Europe, Bickers and the US focuses on its own population – China and Russia have been busy supplying their vaccines to developing countries. In this week's magazine, Cindy Yu writes about the new great game that is unfolding and says the West is yet to turn up. To discuss, Cindy joins me now along with the writer and journalist Owen Matthews. Cindy, in your cover piece this week, you write about the rise of what you call vaccine diplomacy. Can you explain the dynamics in this new power struggle?
2: Yeah, so I focus mainly on China, who has been first to the game, really. Hundreds of millions of doses of its two vaccine producers have already been ordered out. And it's not as if these are world-beating jabs. They've got actually lower efficacy rates than Pfizer, than Oxford in some trials, and even than the Russian vaccine Sputnik. But because of the global shortage and the pressures on production for all vaccines at the moment, China's managed to you know slip into the crevices where the West has not been able to supply a fast, especially because the developed world, high income countries have ordered twice as much vaccine as they will ever need, which means that a lot of that pressure comes from over-ordering, And for low income countries, middle income countries, they're having to turn to China's. And we're, we're seeing countries in the Middle East, such as the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, Brazil and South America, Mexico as well, and then also in Southeast Asia, turning to China for these vaccines and Russia as well. I mean, Sputnik is a patriotically named vaccine. That's exactly how the Russians see this game as well. So what we're seeing is that the non-Western world is looking at vaccines through a political lens where they can give, and other people who don't have their own domestic vaccines are having to in some cases we're seeing pretty saccharine statements from all sorts of presidents thanking the Russians and the Chinese for for the vaccines because they haven't got much choice and I think it's a very powerful soft power tool for China in particular to have because this pandemic came from China and so they are so keen on being seen as a solution to the problem and this is just a fantastic way for them to do that at least it seems for now. Cindy's obviously
1: describing this global vaccine rollout whereby China and Russia are offering these vaccines to the developing world while the West is supposedly starting to look inwards. Do you think that that's a fair assessment of it? And, and, and what do you think Russia and China actually want? I mean, clearly there's a political incentive to all this.
0: Well, in Russia, it's been very clear right from the beginning of the pandemic that that they see this as an opportunity to show that Russia is not just as good as Europe in something, but actually better than Europe. So right at the beginning, even before there was even talk of a vaccine, you saw Russia sending sort of military planes full of PPE gear, protection gear, to Italy as a humanitarian aid, as a propaganda tool. And they've now, actually having registered their Sputnik vaccine on August the 11th. It was actually the first sort of antiviral agent to be registered anywhere. And they've now set up over 10 sites in India, China, Brazil, South Korea, producing Sputnik Five. So for Russia, it's a way of showing that they can actually still achieve world-beating medical technology and also strengthen their, their ties, both commercial and political, with countries who they'd like to be allied with. But most of all, the bottom line is, for Russia, is that it shows that they're still in the game of high technology, which I don't think China has to prove. But for Russia it's really a matter of national pride and hence Sputnik, Sputnik of course being the first satellite ever produced by anyone in the world. It's a very clearly nationalist project to project the idea that Russia is still, you know, great and powerful and sophisticated technologically.
1: Cindy, a very interesting point in your piece is that the Chinese aren't actually taking their own vaccine or they're not there's not a huge rollout of it at the moment why is China not vaccinating its own population and and is it purely for kind of humanitarian reasons that it's then giving these vaccines out to the rest of the world?
2: Yeah, so the situation in China is really interesting because this is the country that invented the overnight lockdown in Wuhan. It was the first to build field hospitals within a week. So clearly it's capable of moving fast. But on vaccinations, President Xi only set a target of around 50 million people vaccinated. It was originally set for mid-February. It's now been pushed back to late March. It sounds like a lot, but that's only 4% of the Chinese population, not nearly enough to reach any sort of herd immunity. Also, these vaccines, the Chinese ones, they're not being rolled out to the over-60s, who we we know are the most vulnerable, who need the vaccine the most, and that's because there's not enough clinical trial data to show that they're safe for that age group. So even the Chinese regulators haven't allowed them to be rolled out in the older population, which means that the people who are able to access them, they don't feel as pushed to need them because, A, they don't think they're going to get COVID in time soon. China claims that its new daily cases are in the single digits. And B, if they did get it, they don't feel like it would be a life-threatening thing. Which, as you rightly point out, you know that allows China to put all of its vaccines abroad. And no, I don't think it's all for humanitarian reason at all. I mean, I don't, I don't think great powers really do anything for humanitarian reasons, to be honest. But for China in particular, it's a soft power gain. You know, it is often said that China has won world influence and is growing and challenging America through military might and through economic arm twisting. But what China really, really really wants as well is that legitimacy to its power it wants that moral legitimacy it wants that soft power package and this is something that we'll, could give it to them
1: and um, what do you think all of this means for the west if china and russia are rolling out this huge program of vaccine diplomacy does that somewhat undermine the west's own position if it's just focusing on vaccinating its own citizens country by country
0: well, certainly in terms of of realpolitik, Russia has been absolutely ruthless in using Sputnik Five as a stick to beat the West and beat the EU specifically. This is particularly evident in their vaccine diplomacy with. With Hungary, which is arguably the closest or the weakest link in the EU and the closest to the Kremlin, the most sympathetic towards the Kremlin, because Viktor Orban, partly because of contrariness, but, but partly because of exasperation of the EU's pathetic vaccine rollout, has been lobbying very hard for Sputnik to be authorized in Europe and for the Hungarian population to be vaccinated by Sputnik. So Russia's position has always been not to deal with. The EU as an institution, but to deal bilaterally with separate countries, and vaccine is a very important tool in that in that political armory. And last week, the representative of the EU went to Moscow and was you know frankly humiliated because he made some noises about repression and about the jailing of Alexei Navalny and so on. But basically, he was there to negotiate or to 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 ask for to open talks about getting Sputnik V to plug the EU's vaccine gap and that cap in hand... Position was seriously embarrassing and seriously weakening for the EU as it tries to lecture Russia about human rights. Actually, human rights can go hang if they want our virus, then they just have to leave us alone, and deal with us on our own terms and that 's been the Kremlin 's message and Vaccine diplomacy has actually been one of the most successful things that has ever been accomplished under Putin, actually frankly in terms of its international impact and its political and its political useful utility.
1: One of the points you make is that China is now trying to present itself as the solution to the pandemic rather than the cause. Do you think China feels it has a sort of need to atone for the pandemic?
2: No, I wouldn't say your tone, <laughs> because that would suggest some kind of admission of responsibility. I don't think that that's how the Chinese Communist Party thinks. It certainly thinks in terms of reception to the country. And I also say that, you know, last year, China risked being pariah state. And indeed, it, you know, is still in danger of being pariah state. But what the vaccines and earlier last year, the PPE deliveries as well, what that makes China feel like is that it's a responsible world player. It's getting the reception it wants from the recipient countries. Presidents saying that they are incredibly honoured to have the Chinese vaccines. Other presidents kissing the Chinese flag, you know, that sort of thing. It's not so much atonement as recognition that China is great and that China's friendship is worth something and literally worth lives for countries whose whose lives can't be saved with Western vaccines, at least yet.
1: And, and finally, what do you think is going to be the long-term impact of this? Do, do you think we're going to see an EU that has sort of far closer ties to Russia and China because of the vaccine.
0: I personally don't think that actually COVID is, is really going to be an issue long term. I, I think we're just gonna all forget about it, was or so I certainly hope. But the um the temporarily Russia is on the front foot and the vaccine is something that allows it to sort of brush its own domestic problems under the carpet. I, I think long term perhaps Russia's going to hold on to some of that respect that it's gained from its vaccine diplomacy. But uh I, I think that's in a year's time we're gonna be back to the same the same dynamic and russia's vaccine triumph is going to be rather short-lived once everyone has been vaccinated and no one cares about covid anymore
2: I think Owen makes a very fair point that a lot of this might be temporary and at the moment we're talking about western vaccine shortages but with time that will get better. There are also polls showing that even though the Chinese vaccines and the Russian vaccines are quite sought after it's still the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca jabs that people trust the most around the world. And so you say even
1: in your piece that the Chinese seem to trust those ones the most as yeah, well? Yeah so
2: there's a bit of confusion on Chinese social media as people try to find out which one is better and then interpreting state epidemiologists words to say one epidemiologist said if you have an imported car or domestic car you all know which one to get so why don't you for a vaccine what he's picking up on is that chinese people prefer imported cars anyway but yes so so i think that china's head start in this may only be temporary and china's vaccines are not as good in terms of how long they take to create it 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 takes much longer to produce those so i think that the west can win this game back but for now it does seem like they don't even understand that the game is on
1: Thank you, Cindy, and thank you, Owen. Next, a New York Times reporter quit the paper earlier this month after he was accused of using the N-word on a trip to Peru in 2019. It was the Times' attempt to get into the travel business, selling American students a trip to faraway countries accompanied by one of their reporters. Donald McNeil Jr., who, before he left, worked as the paper's science and health reporter and had been leading its coronavirus coverage, was one such reporter who was selected for the trip. Several students complained about McNeil after the trip, and the reporter was then called into a meeting with executives at the Times. After an internal investigation, he was let off with a reprimand and a note in his personal file. But the story didn't end there. Rick MacArthur, the publisher of Harper's Magazine, writes about the incident in this week's magazine. He joins me now, together with Eric Wemple, the Washington Post media critic. Rick, after McNeil was disciplined, the master seemed to go away. But then something happened in January this year. Can you explain to listeners what happened and what you think it reveals about the U.S. press?
3: The Daily Beast more recently reported or revealed the story, broke the story, of of this controversy, which up to that point was internal. And Dean Baquet, the uh, uh, executive editor of The Times, went further and I, I believe forced McNeil to resign. He's not officially fired, but I, I think forced to resign is one of those great euphemisms, but that's the best I can come up with right now. So I find that um, distressing in the wake of what happened to James Bennett last summer, although there's some differences in the two examples. James Bennett being the editorial page editor of the, of the Times who published an op-ed after the George Floyd riots in which a senator called for the use of the army to suppress the riots. And there was an uprising at the paper and on Twitter and so on. But we're seeing this in the in the media all over the place. Uh, we're seeing lots and lots of people being driven out of their jobs and in journalism particularly for using the wrong word, having the wrong tone of voice in some cases, because apparently McNeil was also quite dismissive on this uh, trip to Peru of native shamans or something, native religious ceremonies. This got him on bad paper, too. So if you're sarcastic, ironic, use the wrong epithet. Oh, and by the way, McNeil defends himself saying that, which is important, that he used the word as information. He didn't use it as an insult. And to finish, I'm sorry, to finish the story, a New York Times columnist, Brett Stevens, wrote a column denouncing the firing or the forced resignation of McNeil, and the column was spiked. Stevens's point was that intent has everything to do with civilization, whether you make make a a, a civilized democratic behavior, to make a a distinction between the use of a word as information and using an epithet as an insult. They're two very different things. And Bakkei had initially, the editor of the Times had initially said, it doesn't matter what the intent is, you can't use words like that. Then he changed his story and said, of course I'm wrong, intent is important, it should be included in, the, in any discussion of the use of the word. But by then they had, they had spiked Stevens's story, which has turned up now in the New York Post which is the Murdoch press in New York, which is a, a great irony, but I've talked too long. So.
1: <laughs> Eric, what did, what did you make of the Times' response to all of this? Well, I mean, the, I think it, it should be
4: pointed out that after the trip, McNeil went through something of a disciplinary process and he received a reprimand from management uh, with respect to the situation. That was in September 2019. And I believe that all sides at that point believed that that the matter was pretty much shut and closed. And so it wasn't until recently that these complaints from the kids surfaced as in the Daily Beast. And so they became sort of a, uh, they became a crisis again, but this one, this time, a more public one. I think one of the things that the New York Times has to consider is when is something complete? When is something finished? Is this place going to be a governable news organization if, you know, you have your duly <laughs> selected management going through a disciplinary process, reaching the decision, and then being pressured to reinvestigate and reopen the matter. I mean, it's not technically double jeopardy, but it's it's close because there wasn't a, a, a second formal disciplinary proceeding. There was, however, obviously some discussions and, as Rick said, a resignation that was at least under pressure,
3: if not forced, yes. Double je- it's the same in England, right? Double jeopardy. It's it's not done. <laughs> <In> <laughs> That's true. Judicial proceeding. It's, be- <laughs> it's, it's a ba- It's 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 wrong. Okay. Well, it's illegal. It's,
1: it's it's interesting. You mentioned the UK because I was going to ask you about this because I mean over here, you know, American journalism is held in, in very high regard, probably higher than we suddenly hold our own press. Do you think we need to readjust our estimation of of the the U.S. press?
3: Well, the point I make in my piece is that I think the problem in American journalism is deeper than just political correctness. There is a, a, a wave of, ins- I think, almost insane political correctness that's taken over the, the American media, but it's taken over all different sectors of the culture, not just the media, politics, Hollywood, and so on and so forth. We're all male-female sexual relationships. So this is very much in the air. So it's not just in the media. But in the American media, I think there's always been a tendency to go along, to get along, that conformity in American journalism is more the rule than oppositional press. And I was struck. These things all came together because I've been collecting clips and anecdotes and so on when I read about what happened to McNeil, because the Times would like people to think and most newspapers would like to make... Uh, Their readers believe that they're strong proponents of checking arbitrary and reckless power of the sort that Trump is guilty of, was guilty of. But before Trump, there are so many examples of the American press lying down dead and letting uh, the government run over it or actively collaborating with the government that I think it's a caricature to think of the American press as oppositional. And the example I used, it just happened to, to drop in my lap, was the letter that Arthur Salzberger, the former chairman of the Times, of the New York Times, former publisher of the New York Times, wrote on New Year's Day where he kind of bragged about how in a typical day he might bend part of it, fighting off pressure from the president or the White House to suppress his story. And the first thing that came to mind was The Times giving in to pressure from the Bush administration back in 2004 to suppress James Risen's massive scoop on the National Security Agency uh, surveillance program, which was warrantless, illegal, uh, and secret. The Times caved in on it, and I would imagine that Salzberger personally was consulted on it and also caved in on it.
4: But they they eventually published that story.
3: Yeah, a year later when when Risen was threatening to put it in a book. So they had to because it would have been embarrassing to them. But they didn't publish it when it mattered, before the election in 2004, when people could have voted against Bush and for Kerry because they objected to the NSA pro- the NSA's, uh, surveillance program.
4: If you, have to, if you have to reach all the way back to 2004, for an example, I, I'm, and by the way, I don't think that there aren't—I'm not saying there aren't instances when, when the press hasn't played— an important accountability role in this country. I think that clearly they are. But I also think that to be even handed about it, there are many many instances in which the media has played an outstanding accountability role for administrations that are both Democratic and Republican. So, I, you know, drawing, uh, painting this picture based on one example doesn't strike me as the most convincing sort of argument. You know, I would have to go back and look at the entire Obama administration, the Clinton. Uh, I mean, those presidents certainly wouldn't think that they were treated uh, with kid gloves by the media and obviously Trump. I don't know that how easy it is with Trump. Obviously, so many of his things were blatant, but there was a tremendous amount of investigation that wasn't right out in the open, exposing Trump's management of the DHS, exposing Trump's management of the Justice Department, so on and so forth. There's a lot of investigative journalism going on uh, with respect to uh, presidential administrations in this country.
3: Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how the, the Washington Post, New York Times, et cetera, do with the Biden administration. So far, it's a honeymoon and everybody wants Biden to succeed and so on. And there's a another thing that we should talk about, which is that the newspaper business, journalism in general, is disintegrating because of the of big tech i mean we're being destroyed by by google and facebook because they've taken all the advertising so the layoffs have made it harder and harder the cutbacks at newspapers make it harder and harder to run a decent newspaper locally and the papers that survive are enmeshed in this crazy debate about political correctness and diversity it's all about who's working at the newspapers and and i grew up in an and and i Insist again that the history of the of the of of journalism is as Eric says is mixed, but that conformity is the greater um, is the greater threat than political correctness. Are you saying
4: that all white mastheads are, are a good thing or a bad thing or, or irrelevant?
3: I I, I, th- I think it's irrelevant. If it's good journalism, it sh- it doesn't shouldn't matter whether it's done by white males or black males or white women or black women.
4: Well, I mean, as our country becomes more pluralistic, I think that it's... Uh, I disagree with you on the diversity thing. I think it's important that newsrooms sort of reflect the, the diversity of the country itself. And I think it eliminates blind spots in coverage. And I think those sensibilities are important to filter into the news product. Otherwise, you, you just end up missing swaths of the country that need coverage. and that And you have conversations editorially that you never would have had. So... You know, I think there's... Uh, I just disagree with you on the, on, on the notion that uh, diversity...
3: But, but do you think there should be... Eric, do you think there should be quotas? Because we, I, as I said... There are quotas. I
4: never argue for quotas.
3: No, no, but I'm I'm asking... We, we had black and, 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 and women, black reporters and women reporters as early as this. When I was a reporter in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of black reporters and a lot of women reporters. How many do you need... To sh- to be diverse enough, to do a better job. I think it's irrelevant, largely irrelevant. But uh, what's the what 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 minimum standards do we need? Do you have a number in mind?
4: Oh, absolutely not. I just think it's a, a question for the for the organization to decide. And you know, and I think that <laughs> obviously, ask me. And a lot of these organizations have had counts and percentages and so on and so forth. And I think that over time, you know, like for example the Washington Post back in when the District of Columbia was 70% black, I don't know what percentage of the post staff was people of color, but it was it was pretty low, or at least considered low. And, you know, there is a tremendous sort of asymmetry there, you know, where you have all, you know, or mostly white staff covering a majority black city. And it's like, there's something that in the coverage, and it's been pointed out year after year after year, that they don't understand the city, they don't live with, uh, among the people they're covering, and that the, that there is something that's missing from the coverage as a result. Um, now we could pour through stacks and stacks of uh, of newspapers, but I think it also goes to the trust in the newspaper, right? That. People's trust in the media has been going down and down and down for years. I have my own theories as to why that is. But when people see themselves reflected in newspaper staffs, in the people who go out into their communities to report uh, on those communities, there's a connection that's made that, ne- that isn't made when the, diver- when the newsroom is, sort of is monoculture. That's my argument.
3: Yeah, but is it worth firing Don McNeil over? I it? think I think that do You is think it was the th- right thing. Do you think it was the right thing to do? McKay says Did Bacay I say admitted that? he was I'm asking you. I'm asking you. I'm asking you. No. Oh, do you, well, do you think it was I, the right thing to do? here's
4: the thing. And this is where I do have an issue with things that have happened at these places. You know, you and your essay talk about buildings Buildings matter too, and you know all these controversies that have come. My basic stance on all of this is that it's good that newsrooms are diversifying and that these issues are getting talked about. I do think that there is a strong break that needs to be made when you consider what the consequences are, and I'm not in favor of this. Um, this, let's get all these people out of the building. Uh, like James Bennett, for example, Rick. James Bennett was pushed out of the New York Times after that Tom Cotton op-ed. And the, if you talk to people deep in the New York Times, they will tell you, and I know because I covered James Bennett very closely, I covered his lawsuit, uh, the Palin lawsuit against him, in which he really screwed up and I believe libeled Sarah Palin. But the reason why he was let go there was this series of management failures that crescendoed with this. But the Times didn't message it that way, as far as I remember. This, I'm going off of memory. The Times should have said, look, this guy has screwed up so many times that we can't stick with him anymore. But instead, it all got put on this this Tom Cotton op-ed, which I do believe exposed a crisis of conviction at the New York Times. They initially stood by that piece, and then they waffled on it, which I do believe is a problem. So I, don't, I, I do believe, Rick, that there is an important threshold consideration that these things should be brought to the fore, they should be discussed, but I don't believe in firing or forcing all these people out necessarily.
1: Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Eric. And finally, the new Netflix film, The Dig, focuses on one of the greatest archaeological finds in British history, the discovery of Sutton Hoo, In this week's Arts Pages, journalist Dan Hitchens writes about the film and examines why Anglo-Saxon history attracts so much interest from the British public. He joins me now, together with Professor Martin Carver, an archaeologist at the University of York, who led the excavations at the Sutton Hoo site between 1983 and 1992. Dan, in this week's magazine you write about Anglo-Saxon history making a comeback. Can you tell us why you think people are so interested in it right now?
5: I suppose buried treasure is always interesting and quite a lot of it has been unearthed in the last decade or so. The Staffordshire Hoard in 2009, which was the biggest find of Anglo-Saxon gold I think there's ever been. And I think that really stimulated the public imagination. Lots of people have gone out with their metal detectors into the fields of the country looking for similar treasures. As you say, the dig that was on um, Netflix the other week. Detectorist, that wonderful BBC sort of sitcom. If you like, you know, TV documentaries, people like Janina Ramirez making those. It's hard to measure these things, but in book publishing, I think there's a lot of interest in, um, you know, popular histories about Anglo-Saxon kings and so on. So it's always been an interesting period, but I just get the sense in the last 10 years, for whatever reason, partly because of those big finds, maybe partly because of some questions about national identity that are newly kind of relevant that this rather neglected period has come back into the limelight a bit
1: Martin you led the excavations at the Sutton Hoo site from 1983 to 1993 and it's obviously the site which is the focus of the new Netflix film the dig which Dan mentions for listeners who might know a bit about Sutton Hoo but not a huge amount can can you explain what it was like working on the excavation process
6: Yes I can I think we started from the mound one Find, obviously that that was the platform from which my project got going, and then we got support from the b b c we got support from the Society of antiquaries got support from the british museum and basically what happened after the discovery was that they studied the finds for many years and then they published them in three huge volumes. But the question then was what was that ship doing there and that was the kind of objective I set myself really. Why that? Why there? Why then? So the process then took a really different course to the more kind of serendipity of I wonder what's in those mounds. You know, we we were after we were after some serious history. And uh, the way that that was done was that, first of all, we spent a long time looking at the site, trying to work out what was left, what's left of it. And then designed a big transect which would take us through some of the mounds. I didn't want to excavate them all because there are more people coming along who can do it better and there's also more techniques there's different questions so I think I would emphasize how much everything's changed since 1939 the one thing that stayed the same is that the finds in 1939 were beautiful and still are beautiful and they're very striking they are not just wealth you know there's a huge ingenuity in the way that they were made and the color ranges are are incredible so the art of Sutton Hoo is really the basis for what happened after that. All the illuminated manuscripts, for example, of the High Bono Saxon School, terrific. I'm not saying they're related people, but they are people who who know what the previous craftsman did and emulated it. So really exciting opportunity for me, and I can tell you more about the excavations if you like, or whatever you like to ask me, I'm happy to answer.
1: Well, I mean, I'd like to know, I mean, I don't know how many people have, would have seen The Dig yet, but you have seen it. And how, I mean, do you think it, it sort of captured the excitement of making a big discovery like that? And, and did it sort of feel, did it ring true to you?
6: Well, I wasn't alive in 1939, so <laughs> I can't really say. I was born two years later, so I wasn't, I wasn't far off, but I, I wasn't really conscious of what it was like to be in the late 30s. However, I liked the film a lot. And I thought that it was made into something really special by the superlative acting, a superlative recreation, really, of, of Basil Brown, which is pretty, by Ray Fiennes and Carrie Milligan. I thought they were super. And the whole thing came across to me, not actually as a piece of archaeology, but more like a piece of theatre, almost Chekhovian, I thought, sort of end of an era, people anxious and worried, war coming sure what class they were in, all that kind of thing. So I felt it was a really pivotal moment and the film did that beautifully. As far as the archaeology is concerned, well, you know, there's been some quite good actual films of the of the dig in action. BBC made a film called The Million Pound Grave. It's done great service in the children's programmes since it was first brought out in the 60s. So so there, there's a lots of detail there, you can see people digging and finding things and get some idea of what it's like to, to brush away a piece of sand and then see something shining which still goes on shining when you brush it rather than disappearing. I think those things are eternal, you know, if you get involved with archaeology you never get tired of finding things, whatever it is. Nowadays people can get really excited about a small group of seeds or an animal bone because it's history. It's a different kind of history, very different but it is history.
1: And, and do you think there's still lots of treasure to be discovered around the British Isles?
6: Yes, I think that the metal detecting movement has been very successful. It, it it got us a lot of trouble, really, from a lot of flack from the continent, because nearly every other country has a law which says you must not use a metal detector. It is spoiling our past. But I think the way that it happened with the British Museum in charge was, was good. And it's Inspectors, the people who actually look at the finds and record them, they are absolutely first rate. I mean, they worked off their feet, but they're really, really good. And every now and again, there's a big exhibition. You can see all things that are found. The people who find them are there. There's a sort of corporate feeling. There's a feeling that we're all in this together. We're, we're discovering more about our own country. All those are real, real positives. And on the whole, we don't have too many. We don't have the tombaroli, you know, in this country. We we don't do too badly from from the point of view of robbing sites. And to be fair, there's not all that many very rich sites. So you do have to do a lot of digging before you were lucky enough to come across something, especially something buried in a field like Terry Herbert did. So I think it's not really the wealth anymore. It's the story. And I, I think we did change that agenda quite, quite seriously in the 1980s. It wasn't more gold. It wasn't more kings. It was the story. And what I was really pleased about was being able to lengthen the story. We now have not just Mound 1, but 18 mounds, not just 18 mounds, but three different cemeteries. And so it starts to look like more of an epic. So there's a family living by the River Deben, they get rich, they have pretensions. It's the time when kingship begins in, in Britain. And that family was Part of the part of the movement, part of the excitement it's the time when territory becomes your main target of allegiance, you know rather than a particular individual you you, you know you start belonging to east anglia all oh, that's pretty exciting, but of course it it's not the only, they're not the only people doing it and, and I think we shouldn't forget that although um, there's lots of excitement about anglo saxons and the, the English derived from the Anglo-Saxons, which they did just as the Anglo-Saxons derived from the Germans. But there are a lot of other people living in Britain, a lot of very interesting people living in Britain. The Scots, the Picts, the Welsh, Cornish, all, all these were different speakers. And to give you an idea of where I come from, we have the English language, but the English language has got German roots, but it isn't German. The English language is a wonderful mixture, a creative mixture, one might say, of the Brythonic languages and the Gallic languages. We don't have Pictish, been looking, but we still can't find it. But that's what makes English so great, is it's a composition of lots of different things. And, you know, when we're talking about England and, you know, the nation and all the rest of it, I think we shouldn't forget that Shakespeare, who was really quite good at English, he looked at the rest of the island too. You know, he was interested in the northeast of Scotland. He was interested in the West of Scotland. Interested in the Welsh, Irish. You know, he he had a feeling that we were part of some something bigger than than, than just England. So I think that's what that's where I would stand. I think.
1: And Dan, this is an interesting point because Martin just mentioned belonging, and in your piece, you you sort of talk about how you kind of wonder whether this new interest is partly a sort of reaction to Brexit and the kind of political forces that we've seen in the last few years. And I mean, do you think? that's part of it that we're sort of looking we're kind of trying to find our own identity and, and sort of reassess our sense of belonging
5: yeah I think it's it's been said that the big political question of the moment is who are we and that's really the question underneath the, the debates about Brexit and obviously Scottish independence and whichever side you come down on there's this question about what, what is the identity of the British the English and I don't think the Anglo-Saxon age has like very clear answers to that but it's a really interesting period to look at in the light of those questions because it's got those origins of the English language so much of the English like state and how power is divided so much of our culture as Martin said so much of the most beautiful art that's come out of Britain is is from that period and like the unification as well of the English into a, a people out of these warring kingdoms, so in some ways it's kind of a patriotic story, but then it's also very sort of cosmopolitan and international. I mean, it's not not even just the the Welsh and the Picts and so on, but a lot of contact with Europe through traders and you know when church was being kind of set up in what's now Germany, they got lots of bishops <laughs> who were English, which is is kind of mad. The English being Brought over to tell modern-day Germany how to organise itself at a different time, and you get fashions coming from you know someone sets up a, a monastery in Northumbria, and writes to Gaul to say, can you get some French stonemasons to um, build in the Italian style because this is what we want here. So many examples of this, a kind of international mindset as well so I think whether you want to look at Britain as kind of a, a unit by itself and how that that comes to be and the deep roots of that or whether you want to stress our links to the rest of the world there's so much food for thought in in the Anglo-Saxons and that's that's part of the revival of interest I'm sure of it
1: and Martin just to finish you just mentioned before the kind of thrill of of discovering something and brushing the dirt off it What's the thing you've, you're most proud of having discovered?
6: Well, I am very interested in what, what Dan just said, I, and I completely agree that the, just, just as an aside, I will answer your question, <laughs> just as an aside, there is an enormous amount of contact going on. If you look at Sutton Hoo, draw a map of all where all the finds come from. Some of them come from Britain and North Britain, some come from Scandinavia and France and Rome. There's textiles from Syria, silver bowls from Constantinople. It's extraordinary. But I think what I added to that was something really, really nice, which was that we excavated a new mound at Sutton Hoo, which was very really exciting. Mound 17, the only other one that's where the contents have been preserved, was a young man with a horse and the horse had a bridle and the bridle was beautifully decorated. And one of the strap distributors, a sort of a roundel on the bridle, is exactly matched by one in uh, Motormark in Cumbria, another one in Dunad in Scotland and best of all right in the northeast of Scotland yet another one. So there was some kind of upper class, some equestrian class we could say, they all come from horse furniture. So the equestrian class was in contact between these nations which now seem so divided. I mean and curiously, they were more together in that period than they are now, and that's something to do with later politics. It's not a sort of evolutionary process. it entirely depends on how people look at each other and you know whether it's I don't know fear and loathing or, or whether it's admiration and respect but anyway, just to get back to your question, where that last bridal disc was found was Port Mohomock in the northeast part of Scotland. and after finishing Sutton who and publishing it, I went off there to try and find the Picts. And we found a a really wonderful site there next to a church dedicated to St Coleman. then redundant. Everybody wanted something done about it. And and so I was pushing it an open door. Local people were longing for a dig, and so they got one. We excavated nearly a hectare there and did a bit of a survey as well. We found a sort of upper, upper rank group of people, the people who'd lost this bridal disc, They were buried in big stone coffins, big stone kiss graves. And then that suddenly ceased and the area became a monastery. So it was a monastery that wasn't in any document, but it was nevertheless a monastery. It was making wonderful sculpture, such as only the Picts can do, beautiful carvings. It was making church plate, so it's making things out of silver and bronze for for use in the mass. And it was also making vellum. So it was making vellum, therefore it was making manuscripts, therefore it was making the whole kit for monasticism, suddenly arrived. But these were the local people taking on the new idea, just as the local people took on the new idea, or local kings anyway, Sutton who took on the new idea, which was Christianity. So all this, for me, means that there's a lot of history still to be written, mainly by archaeologists, but it's still to be written in that period. And... I, I gave it a new name because that's what you do, if you hope people <laughs> will be interested in it. So I call it formative Britain. It's the time when, it's not the time between the Romans and the medieval period. It's not the time between Caesar and Shakespeare's kings. It's its it's, its own time. And for me, a lot of the great inventions and ideas, especially in politics, were already out there during the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th century. So that's that's what I'm most proud of but I'm quite well aware that in a few generations people will saying, will be saying what a strange book that was <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure they won't <laughs> and that's everything this week if you want to read everything we've talked about you can pick up a copy of the magazine and you'll find it all there there's also plenty of other brilliant articles we have Francis Pike on whether Biden can contain Xi's China Josiah Gogarty on middle class dads and Laura Feigl on Elizabeth Bowen's affair with a young married scholar Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week.
0: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12 week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.